The following podcast contains explicit language. Moments ago, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer acknowledged that the president believes three to five million votes were illegally cast in November. You won the election. What are you complaining about? There is no widespread evidence of massive voter fraud. And there is a reason they are providing no evidence. There is no evidence. It is not true. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the president who is still obsessing over his crowd sizes, Donald Trump. I'm Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent, stepping in for today's show. Trump is the president, but he never quite reconciled himself to losing the popular vote in his race against Hillary Clinton. In fact, before even taking office, he told the world that he would have won the popular vote, if not for illegal voting. On Monday, in a meeting with congressional leaders, Trump raised the specter of illegal voting again, asserting to lawmakers that there were three to five million illegal votes in this election. Coincidentally, that's enough to erase his popular vote deficit. When pressed about this claim, his press secretary, Sean Spicer, defended his boss's beliefs, citing unnamed studies from unknown sources. Likewise, in an interview with ABC News, Trump defended this view, citing a study from the Pew Research Center. Pew, for its part, says that the president is gravely mistaken. Its study deals with voter registration, with the fact that people can be registered in two different states. The authors say there is no proof of mass voter fraud. In fact, across the entire world of people who study voting, no one says there is proof of mass voter fraud. And yet, the president continues to make the claim. Viewed in isolation, all of this looks a little crazy. But looked in the context of the Republican Party and its actions on the state level, it makes much more sense. GOP lawmakers across the country have embarked on efforts to restrict or limit the vote, often citing voter fraud and other discrepancies. They've passed strict ID laws, reduced polling places, and established new hurdles for voters, all to stop a phenomenon that, again, doesn't seem to exist. Viewed in this light, Trump's rhetoric seems to presage a national push for tough voter laws. And to that, his press secretary has cited voter ID as a potential measure for stopping this alleged fraud. On today's show, our guest is Van Newkirk, a staff writer with The Atlantic who covers voting rights and other issues. We will discuss Trump, voter fraud, voter suppression, and what we can expect from the administration. But before we get to all of that, a quick word from our sponsors. To discuss Trump's language and the larger issue of voter suppression, our guest today is Van Newkirk, a staff writer for The Atlantic Magazine. Van covers a lot of topics, but he's done uh, some particularly great work on voter suppression, especially in states like North Carolina and Wisconsin. Van, welcome to Trumpcast. Oh, thanks for having me. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about is sort of what are your thoughts on the language Trump has been using with regards to voter fraud? Do you think it presages anything or do you think it's just sort of idle language he's using because he seems to like to repeat conspiracy theories? Well, I think part of it is definitely Trump, President Trump feeling that some of the same things that happened on the trail, losing the popular vote. Uh, these are things that actually I think he's, he's upset about. Um, he doesn't like the implication of losing the popular vote and winning the White House. And he coming in with sub-50% approval ratings in the shadow of alleged Russian interference, he needs to shore up his legitimacy in any way he can. And part of that 
has always been. Before he was on track to win, he claimed that there was rampant voter fraud, and he's still keeping up the claim because part of his attestation that he lost a popular vote is because of voter fraud. So right. You have to keep that up. Yeah. I think that's definitely the case. Uh, do you think that as a result of this obsession with voter fraud, we'll see any federal action with regards to voting laws or voting rights, uh, obviously in the direction of trying to do something about this specter of fraud? Well, the one thing I'm keeping an eye on is Trump has pretty much followed the Republican line here of linking reports of voter fraud, however accurate or inaccurate they may be, with larger policy prescriptions. So what he's, what he's been saying is we need to look into this, right? During the campaign, he was saying basically need to have people come out and watch the polls, which has always been code for uh, intimidation. In minority, he said particularly in neighborhoods like Philadelphia, you know, those places. Um, and I think, you know, what he's saying what the press secretary just said about looking at states that did not vote for Trump, um, looking at voter fraud in those states, in places that didn't vote for Trump, that seems to me to be sort of code for examining voting patterns in largely communities populated heavily by people of color. And that's when you really get into the uh, nice, really fun, tricky, dog whistle language of voter suppression. Right. And I recall during the campaign, I remember him speaking specifically about uh, 2012 and Romney not winning votes in neighborhoods in Philadelphia and not winning votes in neighborhoods in Chicago and him citing that as an example of voter fraud when the reality is that just as a matter of statistics, you would have to expect that in any given election, you'd have communities where a candidate didn't win any votes. Right. I mean, it's... You're going to have some places where people just aren't, say, feeling <laughs> Mitt Romney. You're going to have neighborhoods <laughs> that are uh, 100% people of color, 100% people who are not feeling Romney or Trump, and that happens. Um, and you are going to have some actual discrepancies. You're going to have some voter roll issues. You're going to have some issues with machines. You're going to have some people who are, as we have seen, registered in two places to vote. These do not constitute fraud, though. Most times we know of when you have a certification process for the election by the state, they go through all these discrepancies and see if any of them had any effect on final vote tallies. And the fact that we've had 50 plus certified elections in 2016, that means, you know, they didn't see any of those things happen. And these are 36 GOP governors who did that. Right. And I think one thing that's important to emphasize is that part of the reason we have these discrepancies and we have sort of these occasional flub ups uh, with regards to double registrations and such is just the fact that we don't really have a single national election system. We have 50 separate election systems. And even then, each state, each different localities in different states might perform their election duties a little differently. And so it's a very patchwork arrangement we have here, which means that there's going to be some inevitable, like you said, discrepancies. Yeah, when you look at comparable democratic systems, voting here is pretty hard and really, really decentralized in a way that, you know, is uniquely American, however you want to take that. Uh, and I think you, you were alluding before to whether Trump can use uh, the specter of voter fraud to implement sort of a national initiative. I think that would be tough because states historically resent any national influence being asserted over their electoral processes. I think what's most likely is there would be some sort of commission 
to uh, issue best practices and sort of a signal that DOJ and the courts would step back when uh, suits are brought up that are in compliance with those best practices. So we actually, perhaps unfortunately, the key example here was the uh, Carter Commission, led by former President Jimmy Carter, which was the first federal national prescription for voter ID. Which I think I think brings me to sort of my next set of questions here, which is that, you know, earlier, you know, we mentioned voter suppression and often that conversation happens hand in hand with voter ID, which is something that the press secretary mentioned. But I wanted to ask you about sort of what does voter suppression look like on the ground? And I know you've written about tough voter laws in places like North Carolina and Wisconsin and redistricting in those states. And so, you know, specifically if a Trump administration were going to follow up the president's talk about voter fraud with something um, to uh, advance the cause of dealing with voter fraud, do those states offer any examples of what that might look like? Yeah, so I think uh, the, the probably the, the most advanced uh, campaign was North Carolina between 2012 and 2016. When you, you looked at their voter ID laws, these were very strict voter ID laws. You had to have uh, basically essentially a license. Um, you couldn't have a student ID. You had to be registered as a driver, which meant you had to go to a DMV. And so for a good portion of a state that is 40% rural, that, that's kind of tough for lots of people, especially uh, students, older people who do not drive, people who have visual uh, impairments who can't drive. And then it affected lots of people on a what was later found to be a racially discriminatory. I think they, the words they used uh, eventually were with surgical precision um, on, on that basis. You also have things, uh, what North Carolina did, which really took it over the top, was they commissioned studies. The uh, state legislature commissioned studies to basically find how people of color, especially, were voting, what levers they use the most, do they use early voting the most, do they use uh, mail-in ballots, uh, on-site absentee, did they register in advance? Uh, in North Carolina, you can register up to two years. You could register up to two years before your 18th birthday in advance, and they found people of color, black people especially, were using all these things, uh, basically, that had been established as remedies to the long legacy of Jim Crow. Um, by Democratic legislatures. So what they had under the guise of, they called it cutting costs, they called it uh, improving the integrity of the election, reducing fraud. But really, the evidence of that study and the fact that they commissioned it showed that they were looking at how races were voting in North Carolina and chose almost to every single policy that had people of color voting or using it more, they slashed. And that's just how it went. Since we're talking about, since we started off talking about ID, one of the things, and I, I kind of just want to like put this out there, you know, one of the things I often get, and I'm sure you get it too, um, when talking about voter ID and the problems with it is the inevitable response. I need an ID to buy beer. I need an ID to go to the library. What's the big deal about an ID for voting? And I think it's like it feels self-evident to us 
why requiring um, certain forms of ID to vote uh, is a problem. But could you just like talk a little bit in detail about why that is an issue? Well, of course, requiring an ID for voting is not really out of step with requiring an ID for purchasing beer, doing lots of other things that we require identification for. Uh, but I think the issue really here is that those things, number one, are not fundamental rights. There is no fundamental right to purchase beer. There's no fundamental right to go to a library. It's not protected in the same way. And also there are, say, for having a beer or going to the library, in lots of places there are different ways you can provide the ID to do that. In states like North Carolina, what they the evidence shows that they found a form of ID that was already racially disparate in terms of who had it. And that was a driver's license. Driver's licenses have always, and also birth certificates, uh, lots of places require that your driver's license and your birth certificates match, which has always been a problem, especially for older black women uh, who lack the resources to go and officially change their name. It, it, ask any woman who's changed her name after marriage. It's not an easy thing to do, <laughs> especially for people of color who grew up, uh, who have established themselves as adults uh, during the Jim Crow era when you did not have official public services reaching out to lots of black communities, when you did not have uh, official marriage certificates for everything, when lots of people, my parents are you know, in their 50s and just were able to receive the first copies of their real birth certificates. They grew up in North Carolina, Mississippi. This is not an uncommon thing, uh, for, especially in the South, uh, for people who grew up during Jim Crow. And it's obvious, based on all the evidence that we have, based on testimonies, based on reports, that state legislatures that implemented voter ID the way they did knew that. And though the original commission that recommended them was led by President Carter, what they recommended also and what they noted in that very commission report was that voter ID laws could become extraordinarily discriminatory if not implemented using really the sense of uh, equality in mind and having a way to remedy all those disparities. Right. You could imagine sort of universal IDs or, you know, in the same way that um, governments, state governments have a pretty easy time mailing you all sorts of essential information. Um, you, you know, every everyone every year uh, updates the registration and gets an ID mailed to them for the purpose of voting. But that stuff is rarely on the table when voter ID laws are being drafted. Well, yeah, nobody wants to make it easy. And that's the point. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're never going to find voter ID laws in conjunction with states who are, that are actively trying to make voting easier. You've got on the other end, you've got people, states in the West that are allowing people to vote by mail on Election Day. And those exist. None of those states are doing voter ID laws. It's pretty transparent in how it works. And I think the fear in lots of the states, in Wisconsin, North Carolina, Texas, Arizona, is that this is going to become sort of an innovation lab. Uh, so if you can require people, if we can establish legally that there is a protection for requiring people to, to have IDs to vote, then you get into the requirements for having the ID. And that's where I think the real potential of these laws to discriminate comes from. There's nothing really stopping states if voter ID law is submitted in law from, say, 
requiring you to have paid property taxes to require a certified ID. We don't have any real constitutional protections there. Right. That's right. And sort of that gets me to the second thing I was going to ask. I mentioned two things at the top. And the second was, and this gets back to Trump, that given, I mean, given what we, given that the Department of Justice has quite a bit of um, influence over how voting works in this country, um, given that there has been under the Obama administration this kind of uh, tug of war between states like North Carolina and Wisconsin and the Department of Justice on trying to push back against these restrictive voting laws. Uh, do you think that under a President Trump and let's say an Attorney General Jeff Sessions who who has been hostile to expansive conceptions of voting rights, do you think that what we might see in effect is a Trump DOJ kind of taking its hands off and letting states do as they please. And so if a state decides it wants to link uh, having ID to paying property taxes, well, no one's going to file a Section 2 under the Voting Rights Act complaint against those states. Well, that's one outcome. I actually think that's probably the the least bad outcome. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Oh, my God. The more extreme outcome, and it's already happening, is the DOJ not simply taking its hands off, but actually filing on behalf of the states, which uh, we should expect that to happen in the Texas uh, voter ID case now. It's, um, DOJ lawyers have requested them to delay the, a hearing in a Texas federal court on whether their ID law was had a discriminatory intent. And they're expecting that under sessions, DOJ will completely flip positions and actually file a brief on behalf of the state. So then you get really interesting. You know, you you have this, and this is what I think Trump is likely promising, is you're going to have an activist federal government on behalf of state efforts to do things like this. And that's where it's not only flying in the face of the purpose of the Voting Rights Act, but, you know, you, you get, I think, much worse outcomes than you would via just a passive government. That is very worrisome. Um, <laughs> and I would, you know, I would say that it's very worrisome in part, right, because these things kind of compound each other. That if if uh, an activist DOJ working with states to suppress voters ends up, you know, creating a situation where turnout falls in a midterm election or falls in a presidential election, it could end up empowering those people again to move forward and sort of you have this unvirtuous cycle that facilitates even more disenfranchisement. Yeah, so that's the one thing I always want to stress is this is how voter voter disenfranchisement doesn't work just by necessarily categorically removing the right to vote for everyone, right? You couldn't do that under Jim Crow. Uh, it really, how it works is you reduce the faith and your ability to vote, and your ability to, to vote unmolested, and, and the, your faith in how the electoral system works so much that a community just simply stops going to vote. And that you may only require to disenfranchise 20% or so of a community that way. And you look at how felony disenfranchisement works already, it's actually surprising we have as high turnout among black communities as we do based on that dynamic. 
and, and felony disenfranchisement for listeners uh, who aren't familiar with the term it just means that um, there are uh, many states largely in the South where being convicted of a felony uh, strips you of your voting rights, either indefinitely or for some amount of time um, that can only be remedied through usually very cumbersome methods of, of going through state government. Right. And it's the main surviving legacy of Jim Crow. Voter disenfranchisement laws were passed almost explicitly, not not almost, explicitly and almost exclusively for the purpose of removing the right to vote from black people um, in conjunction with the very purposeful also rise of mass incarceration. And so it's very fun. <laughs> fun. Fun is definitely one way to put it. Uh, last question for you, and it's a bit open-ended, and that is, what do you think is likely to happen? I mean, we've talked about the least bad scenarios and worst case scenarios, but sort of what is your kind of average scenario um, at the end of four years, say? So I think the most likely scenario here is uh, there's an investigation. Nothing much comes of it. There's maybe a commission at the federal level on recommending voter ID, recommending that states roll back things like early voting and get rid of mail-in voting, but there isn't a direct federal injection of power over uh, elections. But what I, and I think Trump also appoints a relatively mainstream conservative justice, uh, Scalia Light, and what happens will probably the cases in Texas, North Carolina, Wisconsin that are pending and some other cases pending cert will probably end up weakening the power to sue uh, over the Voting Rights Act and will probably end up with, with less federal oversight in state elections. I think probably things like North Carolina's voter ID law will, will end up staying law and being law. And I don't know what the long-term implications of that are, but that seems to be the, the, the most likely road. I've been talking to The Atlantic's Van Newkirk. He covers health care voting rights, and a host of other issues. Uh, thank you, Van, for joining me on the show. All right. Well, thank you for having me. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Jacob Weisberg is creator of the show and our own little Nick Fury. I'm Jamal Bowie, joining you from the swamp, which is still pretty swampy. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Cast.